Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Appreciate all of you that leave reviews. The best place to leave a review is at iTunes. Um, really appreciate those. There's reviews there. Um, but with that, I don't have a lot of housekeeping. Just like to get right to our guest. My guest today joining us from Zoom in Canada is my friend Kim Siever. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thank you for having me, Richard. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Will you spell your name for our listeners? I think most would get it, but just in case. Sure. K-I-M and then Siever, S-I-E-V-E-R. I think that's important because in Utah, that's probably the I would probably come after the V. Well, that is different. I actually wrote it down on my paper wrong. So now S-I-E-V-E-R, is that right? That is correct. Well, I'm glad we got that right from the beginning. I didn't wait till the end. Um, listeners, Kim is going to share his story as a queer Latter-day Saint. He is a married father of six children. He has three kids in the church and three kids that are queer out of the church. He's in his 40s. He served a mission in Provo, Utah. You currently live where, Kim? Lethbridge, Alberta. And you grew up, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about where you grew up. You've been in a couple spots in Canada. I have, yeah. So I grew up in Saskatchewan. I was born and raised there till I was 16. Uh, most of that time I spent in the capital city, Regina. And then uh, just before I turned 16, my parents moved to Vancouver in British Columbia. And that's where I graduated high school. That's where I left for my mission from. That's where I met my spouse. And then uh, three years after we were married, we moved to Lethbridge, Alberta for me to uh, go to school. And we've been here ever since. Tell our listeners your education background, what you do for a career. Sure. So <laughs> actually, my education background is really interesting. So I started uh, at college in Vancouver. I did a year there as a French major and then transferred to the university here. And then after a year, I dropped out. And then a year later, I went to, or I, I transferred to the university here. And then um, after a year, I dropped out. And then a year after that, I went into the college here. Colleges and universities are different here in Canada. Um, and I did a two-year program in multimedia production. And so I spent a few years doing website design. And then um, I went back for another year of university because I switched my degree to a new media degree. But then I ended up having to take a drama class as part uh, as a required class. And then I fell in love with drama. So I switched to, to a drama degree, which is where I stayed. And then, um, but I only, so then I dropped out again. And then I came back to school after being laid off uh, back in 2010 and went back to school in 2011 and finished off my degree this time. I finished off with a dramatic arts degree, but I realized uh, just leading into my last semester that if I took, because I had been a French major before, I'd taken several French classes. If I took one more French class, I would qualify for a minor in French. And so I registered for advanced French grammar after not having taken any French classes for 13 years and not having a fluency in French. So that was interesting experience. But I graduated in 2013 with a dramatic arts degree at the minor in French. And that's where I sit for my education. It goes um, for about eight years. I was running a 
communications consulting company. And then at the start of the pandemic last year, I lost all of my clients because they all had to shut down and couldn't make any money. And within a month, I had pivoted to independent journalism. And I've been doing that for the last year and a half or so. Wow. Do, do you have a focus on journalism? When I hear independent journalism, I don't know a lot about that, Kim, but I, I assume you have a focus or a general area of expertise. So that's two questions. And how is it going being on your own, changing careers in your 40s? There's probably listeners that are doing the same thing that are curious about just, you know, how that's going for you. Well, first, um, I focus on political news. And um, so mostly Alberta news, but some Lethbridge news, some Canada political news, but yeah, primarily political news. Uh, as far as switching careers, my entire adult life has been switching careers. So <laughs> I haven't, I, I have had so many different types of jobs the entire time that I've been an adult, like from before my mission and after my mission. And so this is just one more brick in that wall. I don't, I don't even know how long I will be doing this for. So I, for the foreseeable future. But um, as far as how I'm liking it, I, I enjoy it. It's, it's um, an interesting experience. I was uh, on the school newspapers in um, junior high and in high school. And so being in media was something that I've wanted to do. I was um, an editor-in-chief with a citizen journalism site a few years ago, about a decade ago that uh, me and about a dozen other volunteers helped to coordinate. Um, and then I also was did some work around the same time on a political news site, also a citizen journalism site, but I didn't, I didn't run it. I was just a contributor to it. So I've dabbled in and out of it, but never as a full-time job. And something that I've always thought is that we needed some more independent, independent media locally. And so it just, the situation presented itself. I had done some research into some issues and published uh, a few stories and they just kind of went viral. And so I, and, and I, I was already collecting donations for other work that I had been doing. And then I, my donations started to increase. And I said, well, wait a minute, if I can do a few more of these and get some more donations, then I could probably make a go at this. And so that's what I did. And, you know, for the first few months, it was pretty lean, but it was already lean because I wasn't getting any money because I lost all my clients, but right now it's not too bad. I, last month was my highest grossing month, so pretty pretty happy That's about great. that. That's great. really admire you doing that. You've got six kids, and um, I've been to Lethbridge maybe once. I haven't never been to since Saskatchewan. I can't even say that right, or Vancouver. There's a couple areas I'd love to go to. And thanks for your service in Utah on your mission. I assume you were, if it was the Provo mission, I assume geographically that was more than just Provo. Did that take in all of Southern Utah in your time? It did, yeah. They've split it up a few times. We basically um, went from point of the mountain down to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. We also took in Mesquite, Nevada, uh, a small section of um, of Colorado. And we also went up to Vernal, like up to the Wyoming, yeah. Colorado, Utah corner. But, I mean, a bunch of that's been cut off now. I served in Heber City, Wellington, Kanab, Pleasant Grove, and then down in Mesquite, and then finished off in Provo. Down um, uh, the Provo City Center Temple was, was in my last area. Wow. Although it was, wasn't the temple then, but. That's really interesting just to hear those towns that you just 
reeled off. They were your missionaries, <laughs> mission areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this will be an interesting podcast, listeners, and I often don't visit very much with my guests. So these are, I call it just going out to lunch and hearing Kim's story. But I think one of the things that's unique is Kim is recently out. You know, he's in his, he's 48. He came out in his mid-40s just a couple of years ago as queer. Um, he came out last Sunday. That'd be the first Sunday in August um, over the pulpit in fast meeting about being queer. And um, so this will just, you know, I'll be interested to hear if this is a new realization for Kim or something he's kind of known about himself um, and why he came out. And he's got six kids, three that are LGBTQ or queer is the probably the term you're using. So I'll use that term. So you know this space well from a parent and also from your own journey. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you, Kim, to see where you want to start. Sure. Yeah. So I'll start with my children. Our first child came out about five years ago, I think. And then um, it would have been, actually it must have been longer than that because I think our our next child came out five years ago. So maybe six years ago, our first child came out and then our next um, about the, the following year. And then our, our third came out a year or two after that. So um, we'd already, and we'd already been trying to create a home that was queer friendly, you know, just in case I had my suspicions, um, that our oldest might be queer, um, maybe a year or two before that. Um, so I wasn't that surprised and it was something that we'd try to nurture in our home because you just never know. Right. Um, but yeah, I grew up completely always thinking that I was a cis straight person. Um, it's just that that's the experience I had. I, in, in school, everybody, as far as I knew, right up until I graduated high school, I, I didn't know any gay people to my knowledge. I didn't know anybody who was openly queer to me in, 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 in any capacity. Um, and so everything to me was, uh, cis heteronormative experience and at church at school with a brown family society in general the media i consumed i mean i grew up in the 80s and the early 90s um so everything everything i experienced was from a cis heteronormative um viewpoint and so there was a lot of pressure for me to fulfill these specific you know sex and gender roles in my life i had sexual experiences when I was a teenager, homosexual tech, uh, sexual experiences as a teenager. Um, but I was always attracted to girls. And so, like, I never considered myself strictly gay. Um, and it was it was in such a short time frame that um, I didn't think much of it anymore. And then I went on my mission, you know, probably a year or two after that, and then got home got married within six months and then been with the same sexual partner for you know, over two decades. And so it, it, to me, it always seemed like it was just this one off thing, even though it was several experiences, it just seemed like it was just this, this, this stage in my life. And so I always pass it off as like experimentation or, or something and didn't think much of it. Um, and to me, it was just memories of past experiences in my life. And 
occasionally, you know, they would come up or, um, yeah, so occasionally the, the, the memories would emerge and I would have to um, come to terms with them again. And But once again, as I had many times before, I would just dismiss them as, as, as experiences and never once questioned my sexuality as a result of it. And even when I did have experiences where I was um, attracted to men or found men attractive, depending on how you look at it, I, again, it never questioned, made me question my um, my uh, sexuality. I, I had been into um, strength training, and so I would watch uh, YouTube videos of you know get, to get ideas on how to on how to do workout and different exercises and stuff. And I would watch strongman competitions and um, fitness competitions and stuff. So I constantly was exposed to, um, you know, men who had no tops on or whatever else. And so I often would just say, you know, I'm just admiring their bodies. This is the type of body I want mine to be like. This is why I'm, I'm working out and, and whatever else. So I never saw it as, you know, being physically or sexually attracted them or whatever. Um, and then it's just last early last year. Um, it just all came to a head and everything just started to get my mind going. And I started to put two and two together. And I realized that, you know, all of these things were um, part of something bigger and they weren't separated, like these sexual experiences of my youth and these, you know, admiring um, strength trainers or um, people I might see. It, like if I would see somebody cross or that would pass on the street that I found attractive, like a, a man that I found attractive, um, I would just, you know, shake my head and dismiss it as, as whatever, right? It's not something I should be doing. But then, you know, I just brought all these things together and I started to contemplate it. And then I just came to a realization. It's like, you know, I'm I'm not completely straight. And so, and I realized that it was more than what I had been looking at. And these experiences I had or when I was a teenager, they weren't experience, experiments of, they were manifestations of my sexuality. And um, whenever, whenever these, this, whenever my queerness was trying to emerge, um, and then I would push it down. It wasn't, it wasn't me being tempted. Um, I had, I was part of a, a online book club, or I am part of an online book club that I attend um, with the Beyond the block podcast and they're discussing um blair osler's queer mormon theology and just this past sunday we were discussing it and somebody had said something that made me realize that these ex these these moments in my life where my queerness was trying to emerge those weren't temptations those were the spirit trying to get me to realize that i'm queer um and so i finally came to that realization uh last spring and once I came to the realization, I came out right away to everybody. 
like I came to the realization the next morning, my spouse and I are lying in bed um, before we started the day. And I just turned to her and let her know. And then uh, later that morning, I texted my parents and then I texted my, we had a brief chat, texted my siblings, heard back from my sister, not from any of my brothers, still haven't heard from any of my brothers. And then I did an online post all in the same day. So I just ripped wow. it off like a bandaid. Didn't have to, I didn't have to, I didn't go through what a lot of other people have to go through when they come out. I didn't have to dwell on it and, and fret about it and worry about it and stress about it. And I just, you know, okay, here it is. I'm just going to do it. And just, that's what I did. And then, uh, but it was right at the start of the pandemic. And so we weren't meeting in person for church. So I didn't, I hadn't come up to our fellow ward members. I have a few added on social media because I come out on social media. So that's a possibility. Some of them might have seen it. Um, but yeah, this past Sunday was our first full Sunday back um, during the pandemic. And it was a fast Sunday and I took the opportunity to go up, up to the front and bear my testimony. I included the fact that I was queer. I told the ward that I was bisexual because there's a lot of nuance in the word queer that they probably wouldn't understand. So I just felt like it would be easier if I used the word bisexual, even though I don't really identify as bisexual. It's too limiting for me. I just find the queer to be more comfortable. That's pretty much my, my coming out story. Well, on behalf of all of our listeners, thanks for just being the courage to share that. That's, um, Every story is so unique, Kim. This is a completely unique story. <laughs> um, that's one of the things that strikes me in this space is just how every story is so different. And before I stepped in the space, I just sort of lumped this whole experience for everybody who's experiencing together. But this is very unique. Um, I think one of the things that's unique is this idea that the Spirit led you to understand that this wasn't a temptation this is who you are just talk more about that and so that's a recent realization like i said it's just something i came to realize this past sunday through our discussion um and uh yeah it was just the realization i came to based on the conversation we were having i can't remember what somebody had said but they said something and that prompted that thought in my mind and i just also realized yeah this is this is who I am. And the spirit was trying to tell me, tell me at this all this time. Um, and, and I, I probably shouldn't, <laughs> I'm not trying to say that the spirit was telling me to have sex with other teenage boys, but just the realization, you know, just the fact that whenever my queerness was trying to service, whenever there, I would have experiences that would try to convince me that I was queer, that that was the spirit, I think trying to, let me know, trying to help me come to realization so that I can, you know, it's something that I can accept and make a part of my life. Talk about why you felt impressed after you understood this about you to tell your wife and to tell social media and to tell your warden to do this podcast. And you'll probably do other things. <laughs> sure. Um, people, people need, um, especially young people, they need others to look up to. And so I, especially in the church, and, and that's another big reason why I came out on Sunday, this past Sunday, 
I think people need someone to look up to um, and not necessarily as somebody to um, to follow their example or to use as a model, but just somebody to look up to. They, they realize that, you know, here's this person who's you know, 48 years old and he's able to make it. And he had all these struggles he had to go through, but he, he made it, right? And so I think that's just something that people need to be aware of. And so it was important for me to be open. It was important for, for me to know that people can see who I am. As far as that's, that's, that's the public part. And then, you know, come out to family and stuff. It's just going to be easier if, um, if I tell them, because otherwise I'm going to feel like I'm, not, I'm hiding it. And it's just going to make things stressful. And like, I'm going to be stressed around my family. And that stress is going to manifest in ways that it's going to be confusing for them. It's like, why are you being like this? Right. And so it was just, I just felt like it was, it would be easier. And um, I'm not young, right. I have all this experience behind me. My spouse and I, we were, we'd been married for almost 25 years up to that point. So we had been through a lot. We have had challenges that we've worked through trials that we've worked through together and so I was pretty confident that, um, you know, this wouldn't be a, a stumbling block for our relationship. Um, and I, I think we've had cha harder challenges than this that we were able to overcome and that um, that didn't really threaten our marriage. And so I was pretty confident that that was going to be the case here, that they would be fine. Um, and I didn't want to... I, I didn't want to feel like I was holding on to this, this secret. So I love the, re it's a pretty unselfish reason. If you think about it, why you wanted to come out, um, part of it's for you. I think you inferred that, but part of it, and to be honest and genuine, but I love that you wanted to help other people know that there's people like them, especially younger people that may be closeted, that there's people like them. Cause I think sometimes it's kind of, you know, the, we had a podcast that we recorded that will be released by the time yours is, but it's not out right now. So it kind of hurts my brain to talk about, but episode 439 with Jeffrey Pierce, he went through the math. He's a young guy who's gay and he just talks about his generation and older generations. And we kind of theorized a little bit why there are less people. And I'm a generation older than you. So I'm 60. I'm you know, I don't, can't keep track of all the names of all the generations, but I think in my generation, one or 2%, according to Gallup, identifies LGBTQ and Gen Z, it's like 10, 12%. But his hypothesis is that the percent's been pretty consistent from generation to generation. And it's just a heteronormative world that's made it harder for people to sort of come out or even accept this part of them. So without, I don't want to make your story that conclusion. I'd love to hear you talk about since you're not part of this group that's traditionally coming out, you're coming out in your 40s, just your thoughts about people would say this is kind of a new thing and this is the younger group and just talk, any thoughts on that? Uh, I totally agree with that hypothesis. I don't think people are any more or any less queer now than they are than they were you know, 40 years ago, 20 years ago. I just think that people are more willing to accept it. And... Um, and I think that particularly young people, uh, because they see other people coming out, you know, their friend, they see their friends coming out, perhaps family coming out, they see celebrities coming out. 
Um, and so people they admire are coming out. And so they're growing up in a culture where it's something accepted, something that's publicly accepted. And I mean, which isn't to say that there aren't, aren't still societal challenges with being queer, but still it's, it's something that's generally accepted and it's, it's harder for other reasons. And it, there could be a multitude of reasons. People, some people might just grow up, um, might have grown up for decades with, you know, certain beliefs and understandings. And so coming out would just conflict with those, or they, it might be, you know, the type of community that they live in. Maybe they live in a, a community that's more, more religious or more politically conservative. And so they just wouldn't have that support system there. Um, they might be in a, a long time relationship that they are afraid to, um, to, to break that they're worried about the risks that might come with that to, to their family. So there's, there could be all sorts of reasons. Young people don't have some of those, um, some of those extra considerations to, to take into account when they come out. Um, at the same time, um, I think it's harder for young people to come out to their parent than it is for parents to come out to their children. So, although technically I didn't come out to my children, they just found out through my, my public social media post and just this kind of wasn't it so I guess I kind of stole that from my children that's a fascinating thing it's harder for kids to come out to their parents and parents to their kids talk just more about that no one's ever I've never heard that thought on the podcast well I just think that there's this fear among young people and I mean I I can't say this for sure but this is just the impression that I get but I just think that there's this fear that they're going to that they're going to, there's going to be some sort of a negative consequence to their coming out that they might get disowned, they might get kicked out, they might be yelled at, or whatever else. Um, and I think that risk is lower for you know grown adults with children. It's it's put it, your children can't really kick you out of your own home, so. Um, I just think there's lower risks. And so maybe that's part of it. Um, and possibly as well, children are more accepting, I think, than, you know, middle-aged adults are. And so maybe that's also a part of it, why it's easier for parents to come out to their children. How did your ward respond? That, you know, that's a pretty courageous thing to walk up there in fast meeting. And I don't know how long you've been in this ward, but I assume it wasn't your first week in the ward. So maybe just set the stage for how long you've been in the ward and and the response. I assume some people haven't said anything, and I assume some people have. Just talk to us more about. And a third question, if you can keep track of them, is what would you say to people that say that's not an appropriate thing to do, to share about your sexual orientation in a testimony meeting? Sure. So we've next June we'll have been married. We'll have been in this ward for twenty years. And which is it's a long it's, time. It is. It's a very long time. I I didn't have that luxury when I was growing up. We I grew up in a city um, that had two wards. It's a city of two hundred thousand with two wards, and so pretty much any time you moved, you'd move into another ward. And so that's what happened to us. We kept switching back between the two wards. And then when I was sixteen, we moved to a new ward. And then after graduate high school, we moved again into another ward, and just constantly changing wards. And so I've never been in a ward this long. 
So that's, that's probably was to my benefit that I've been able to build up some social capital in the ward. I was recently called as the Sunday school president um, earlier this year. And actually that was kind of an experience because I had reached out to the previous Sunday school president, um, you know, touching base to see, um, you know, what can you tell me about these teachers? What can you, what, what were some of your plans, you know, just to try and have an orientation, try and make the transition smooth. And, and um, he'd come back and said that he couldn't, I hadn't been called yet. I hadn't been sustained yet. Well, I had been called, but I haven't been sustained yet. Um, but he said that he wasn't going to be able to sustain me because he didn't know I was queer yet. Um, but he must have like followed my website or something because he said that he couldn't support someone who he can sustain someone who supports socialism. I have pretty far left politically. Um, he says he can sustain someone who supports socialism or someone who supports. What did he say? Something like supports the gay lifestyle or something like that. I can't remember his exact wordings, but something along those lines. And so um, that was kind of difficult. Um, but my bishop reached out. He, my bishop, he copied my bishop on the email and my bishop phoned me like within a few minutes of having received the email. So I found that um, uh, um, encouraging. Um, and I responded to him and told him that I was bisexual. I, again, for the same reason, I didn't tell him queer because I this, this, I knew he wasn't going to be able to understand the difference between bisexual and queer. So, um, again, so having been called as this new Sunday school president, and I had been um, one of the things I had been doing was sending out a, a weekly newsletter with tips and suggestions on how to incorporate um, the Come Follow Me lesson in your family scripture study throughout this, this upcoming week. And so people have been getting emails from me, um, you know, with ideas about the gospel, gospel study and, and whatnot. So, and I've always been um, a, a favored teacher in the word, especially gospel doctrine. People like my teaching style. Um, they like when I speak in church. Um, and so I think I have that, again, that social capital. And so coming out on Sunday, I think, um, was easier for me to do than somebody who is brand new in the ward or somebody who is, you know, 14 or something like that. So um, I, I, I was able to take advantage of, of that, that privilege that I had. And as far as um, whether it was a proper thing to do, I think it's important that the ward members know that I'm, that I'm queer. Um, and I used that opportunity to let them know that I'm not the only queer person in the ward. Um, I didn't out anybody, but I told them over the last five years, there's been at least a dozen ward members who I know of who are queer to some degree. And the vast majority of them no longer attend our ward. Um, and I, I thought that was an important point that people understood uh, and that um, there are likely people around them, not just me, who, uh, who are queer. But I also used it as an opportunity to tell people, like, this is something I've had to come to terms with over the last year and a half. Because I, I, I even though it, leaving was something I considered, it wasn't something that I was prepared to do just yet. And so I had to come to determination 
of how that was going to work, how me being queer and how me being Mormon would work. Um, and I came to the conclusion that I can make both of them work. They, it didn't have to be an either or situation that I can be both queer and Mormon at the same time. And so I talked about that a little bit and I talked about how um, my belief in the God hasn't changed. I still believe in God. I still believe that Jesus came here to earth to uh, be an example to us, to teach us how to reach out to the marginalized and how to um, comfort them. I said that I still believe that God and Jesus worked through Joseph Smith to restore the church. And, um, and that I felt like this is where I needed to be at the moment, that, um, that I felt impressed that, that I needed to stay and that this is, this is where I needed to be for now. And that I hoped by me coming out that anybody in the war, particularly young people who are still in the closet would know that they are not alone. Even if they never come to me and ask for advice, they know that there's at least one other person in the ward who is queer. And so they're not by themselves. They know because that could be, that could be a real struggle for young people is like, it's, it's one thing it's, it's hard being a young person and that just being a teenager and then to put on top of that, you know, being queer as well in the Mormon church, it's tough. Um, and if you think that everybody else in the ward is straight and cisgender, and you're the only one that's not, that's going to play a, a lot, that's going to wreak havoc on, on your mental health. And so it's important that people know that they're, you're not alone. And the funny thing is, one of the people, so I had probably about a dozen, maybe 12 or 13 people reach out to me in some capacity, um, in, in some affirming capacity since my testimony, some in person at church, some over email, some over messenger. Um, but one person in particular had come up to me right after our Sunday school class was done. He's all tattooed out, his hair slicked back. Um, he's in a pink shirt and uh, he comes up to me and he says, um, you know, I really appreciate your, your testimony. Um, this is my first Sunday back in a long time and uh, I'm queer too. Uh, I had told my, my daughter's mother that when church was back in, in person again, that I would take her to church. And it just so happened that that, that this past Sunday was that Sunday that he was coming back to church. It just happened to be the same Sunday that I'm bearing my testimony and coming out to the ward. And so he, his first Sunday, he comes to church as a queer person, knowing all that's entailed in that, right? All that's going to come with that baggage of coming into the a Mormon ward setting as a queer person. And then having somebody at the front come out as a queer person in that ward. Um, he, he appreciated that. So yeah, that's uh, now to be fair, there's a lot more than 12 or 13 people in our ward. Um, and a lot of people I have not heard from yet. So I guess it's open to the air how, how supportive my ward is so far. But that being said, um, up on this stand were two members of the bishopric, both of them 
were among the people who were affirming to me, as well as a member of the stake presidency and my previous bishop. Um, and he also came out, uh, came to me in an affirming manner um, after my testimony too. So even though the majority of the ward hasn't said anything, several of the leadership, as well as my elder squad president said something today to me in an email. So at least I know that uh, generally the ward leadership, my priesthood leaders at least, um, are supportive to some degree. Now, who knows what that'll be like uh, when we get a new bishop in two or three years. <laughs> this is a fascinating story. I'm just, now I'm taking, now I'm in the feet of that guy that you described coming to church for the first time and um, some anxiety. And I would guess that was just shocking to him to hear a testimony of a fellow a queer Latter-day Saint. And, and um, what a great day for him. Um, just to know that I love this word that President Ballard used in his April conference talk about belonging, listeners. I think he used that talk, word over 10 times in that talk. Elder Gong, and I also think of Elder Ballard's talk, Stay in the Boat. Um, and the feeling there is that, you know, we want people to stay in the boat and enjoy the blessings of our restored doctrine. But I've really been thinking about my responsibility to make the boat bigger so more can stay. Um, and what I can do to create a feeling of belonging so that everybody feels welcome. And that, and, you know, Kim understands this. I read this quote a lot. If you're a regular listener, you know it. But if you're not, um, fitting is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted Belonging out there on the end doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. So Kim had the courage to to let people know who he is. And um, and then it's our responsibility as Kim's vulnerable and sharing this part about him that to me there should be no shame or no feeling of this part is unworthy or not interested to us or don't talk about this. And even if it makes us a little uncomfortable, it's how Kim is created. And if we pull away or say, don't talk about it, just create shame for people and they don't feel like they belong. They don't feel people want people like them. But the the boat to me, listeners, is like the body of Christ in Corinthians 12, where every part of the body is needed. And think of that guy coming into church. You know, does he wonder if he belongs in the boat? He kind of wants to make another go of it to stay in the boat. And it sure helps him when he knows that he belongs there. And and that there's people like him. And, you know, Jeffrey Parsons in this earlier podcast talks about probably 10%. Gallup is kind of in the 5 to 7% range. And so every congregation has LGBTQ or queer Latter-day Saints. Um, and I'll turn it back to you in just one more thought. So just think about the boat listeners and what, I think sometimes we use that talk as just sort of a shaming thing. Well, you're leaving the boat, shame on you. But I look at Elder Ballard's talk, and it's a few years old of stay in the boat, of what can I do to help more people stay in the boat? And pol politics is part of it. I'm, I'm going to read from the handbook. The handbook, as Kim may know, is just updated. Um, I'll read from the handbook, quote, Members should not judge one another in political matters. Faithful Latter-day Saints can belong to a variety of political parties and vote for a variety of candidates all should feel welcome in church settings. So sounds like you hold 
I don't know what the right language is, minority political positions compared to your ward. <laughs> um, but I hope we create a feeling that Kim is not less faithful or less committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ or anybody in our congregations that's part of a political party is not in the majority in their congregation. I think our church leaders are working really hard to create a feeling that people shouldn't feel they have to leave the boat because people like them aren't welcome in the boat because they hold political views that aren't held by the majority of the people in the boat. Because I want people to stay in the boat. Um, it helps more people join the boat, um, just like this example Kim shares, but then they can experience the fruits of the restoration of the gospel. So this business of people coming out is kind of new still, and it may feel a little awkward, and we may not know what to stay. But to me, this is the maturing of as us as Latter-day Saints to be able to, you know, work to include groups that traditionally haven't felt a feeling of belonging in our congregations. And not just so they feel okay being here, but even more importantly, what they can do to help us become the body of Christ. What Kim has done for 20 years and what he can continue to do in his congregation to help that congregation better mirror the gospel of Jesus Christ through Christ's personal ministry. So, and I didn't quite get to my last point. My last point is Elder Gong's talk at the end. You know, he talks a lot about, you know, the end, comparing the end to the church and our responsibility to create a feeling that everybody's welcome at the end. And he used the what the Good Samaritan did in the end representing the church. So those are a couple talks, I think, you know, general conference talks that I think about a lot because um, it kind of puts the responsibility on me to what I can do to help people feel like they're welcome at church, especially people that are different than me, and that we want to create a feeling of that church is different than an extension of our political party or our membership in a group that has similar, our church is a broader group of people, and we're celebrating the diversity within our congregations, and it's part of what Christ personally showed and mentored and taught. So that's the end of my sort of seven-minute spiel. I'll turn it back to you, Kim. Yeah, I like that idea of making the boat bigger. And I think that was probably, without even realizing it, that was probably part of the impetus to me wanting to come out to the ward is I wanted I wanted people to realize that this that it is possible to be both queer and Mormon if you choose to. I realize that that's not an option for everybody. Um, but not only that, I... I think by coming out and making people, forcing ward members to realize that there are queer people in their congregation, it will cause some of them, maybe most or all of them, to take inventory of the sort of rhetoric they use in their classes as um, teachers, as commentators, or whatever it happens to be. Um, because they might be afraid of um, of offending my sensibilities or whatever. But in the process, then they're also um, not offending other people's sensibilities. They're not making it more, they're not making it uncomfortable for other people, not just me, but for other people to be there in church. Because um, I have been in, in situations where people have said things and be, before I realized that was queer and I still found it offensive. Um, but they felt comfortable because they just assume everybody's cis and straight, who, who, whoever's in that meeting. Um, and so I think by doing that, it, uh, it helps to maybe enlarge that boat. 
And there might be some pushback that comes with that, um, but I'm willing uh, as, a, as a grown at middle-aged adult to take those bullets for other people so they don't have to. I'm willing to, um, to, to do what it takes um, to let, to be the experiment so that the, the youth in our ward don't have to be the experiment. Um, I'm willing to, 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 to be that sacrifice, whatever that might entail. I love that. I wish every ward had someone like you. Um, what a blessing that would be for every member of the ward and the kind of discussions. And I do recognize this us versus them narrative seeps into our congregations. And um, culturally, we've sort of had an us versus them versus LGBTQ people or queer people. And, um, you know, I just... I. For me, listeners, that all shifted when I preached the responsibility for a couple of gay Latter-day Saints, and that's when the us versus them narrative ended in my mind because I just met two incredible faithful Latter-day Saints that were gay, and then the them became people in my own stewardship. And as I've been in this space for about five years, them are Latter-day Saints, like you and like hundreds and hundreds of others if we take the whole LDS population of 16 million and times it by 10% or 5%, we're getting, you know, well over 700,000 um, Latter-day Saints like Kim that are queer or somewhere in the non-straight space. And um, if we start to look at it like that, then the whole conversation shifts. And we think of Elder Gong's talk um, and Elder Ballard's talk about belonging, think, okay, the responsibility is actually on us for those that are straight and those that are cis to um, think about everything going on at church in the context, not every time, everything, but be thinking about classroom comments or lessons being shared and and what that means, you know, and just not need to take on queer people to put to... Sometimes we just need a villain when we teach our lessons, but I think our beautiful restored doctrine can stand on its own merits. It doesn't need um, a villain to sort of drive home its point. Or we can be the villain. <laughs> Explain that. Um, because, I mean, touching on this this idea of the us versus them, that's certainly something that's, that's um, prevalent within our church. But I was a seminary teacher for a little while, and... Um, that was something that I would try to um, to make the students understand. Whenever the lesson would call for me to provide this us versus them mentality, it's like, you know, hear the things about the church and hear the things about the world. I would always bring it back and help them to realize that these things that are qualities of the world, you know, that they're that they're dishonest or the prideful or whatever else happens. These are all qualities that we can and probably do possess as well. So none of us are perfect, even within the church. And so each of us has qualities or does, does things that we could see as villainous. And so each of us, rather than spending time judging other people, judging the other, we could be judging ourselves and finding within ourselves areas where we could improve and areas how we could become more like the Savior. Just keep talking, Kim. I and it, Just what's on your mind right now you'd like to continue to share with our listeners? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I think we've talked a lot about um, the things I wanted to talk about. And the thing that's really tricky for me 
uh, coming out really late in life as somebody who is committed to my marriage is trying to explore my sexuality in any meaningful way. So that's, I, I don't know, I'm not sure what that's going to look like or how long it will take or whatever else. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. And so it's, 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 it's a big challenge. It's, it's a big challenge trying to understand, you know, what my queerness really is like, what the, what the limits and the boundaries and the, the extent and, and the scope and the, the broadness of it, it really is. Um, while also trying to be faithful to my marriage. And so in, in every capacity, not just like, you know, physically and, and sexually and romantically, but just in, in, in every capacity. So that's, that's something that I don't know, I'm trying to explore, but I'm not sure where that's, where that's going or where that it will go or anything like that. So that's probably the, the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about, about the most. And, and then of course, seeing how that all plays out at church, like, I, I, I guess it was, it was nice that I came out a year and a half ago. Um, I had, I was able to practice that and become, be comfortable with my, with my queerness so that I had the confidence I needed, um, to come out to the ward. Like I was pretty nervous, but then again, I'm always nervous when I go up to speak. So, uh, but once I was up there and getting into it, then, you know, I felt at peace and I felt comfortable, um, but even so, like it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how things play out over the next little while. It's hard to read people's faces. Uh, I try not to look at everybody when I'm speaking because then I just get more nervous. But the few faces I did see is, you know, it was, it was hard to tell what their reaction was. So yeah, I guess, I guess we'll just see how that goes. Public, like outside the church, people are generally pretty supportive. I posted on social media. Um, either Sunday or Monday that I had come out at church and I got lots of positive reactions to that. So I was pretty happy about that. So outside the church, there's a lot of support. Um, uh, and then within the church, I guess we'll just see how, how, how it all plays out. And then of course the complexity that it brings to, to our marriage. Um, it's, it's not really a challenge. It just makes things complex. So do a good job of articulating um, your situation. You're a very good communicator, Kim. And I, I'm, you know, it'll be interesting. It'd be interesting to have you on the podcast in a year or two, and just for you to explain how the wards responded and how you've had navigated this. You seem deeply committed to your marriage, deeply committed to the church, but also aware of your sexual orientation and who you are. And I just trust you that you've had a track record of making thoughtful decisions and staying close. And I. I'm not your priestly leader or your close friend, but my reaction is just to trust you. And I think you're going, I generally give advice to people that are first out to go slow. Um, you don't have to answer all those questions that are in your mind right now, but I think you'll continue to know how best to do that. And I hope your ward, and this is me speaking to all wards, when someone's vulnerable, um, whatever the topic is, vulnerability in a testimony meeting or in a class comment, I think we have a responsibility as ward members to just flood that person with love. When people open up about, I don't understand this about the church, or I'm having a challenge with this, or even I felt if someone feels impressed, this is, you know, just to talk about the realities of their life. Sometimes church can be really hard because you have to put on this 
perfectionist sort of image and have the perfect answer and give the perfect testimony. And for some Latter-day Saints, that can be eventually just exhausting because the reality of their life doesn't match the the thing that they feel they've got to be to their congregation. Some congregations have a culture where it's really easy to be vulnerable and real and authentic, and some co- congregations don't. But I think if someone's willing to be real and authentic and vulnerable and others in the congregation can see the love extended towards that person. It allows other people to be vulnerable. It can change the culture of a whole ward. That doesn't mean everybody in your ward's queer. Kim, obviously they're not, but there's probably lots of people in your ward that need to talk about the realities of their life. Um, and it may not be over the pulpit for everybody, but they need to know that the ward's a safe place. They can talk about whatever's going on in their life. Um, we're obviously better as ward families. If someone's has a public medical illness, we know how to deal with that. But there's all these different categories of, I don't want to be calling queer a challenge because it's who you are. And I like the way the spirit is sort of, you probably wouldn't call that a challenge. You'd probably just call it, this is who I am. There should be no shame around this. But any thoughts it, on any of that, Kim? Yeah, well, yeah, being queer isn't a challenge, but being <laughs> queer in the church can be a challenge. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's how people respond to your queerness that's the challenge. Um, it's not homosexuality that's the challenge. It's the homophobia that's the challenge, for example. Um, yeah, and one more Another thing too that you know some of your your comments made me think about as well is um, like not only do I have to explore what my sexuality means in the context of my relationship in the context of my church, um, but then as well like there's because I'm in a straight passing relationship. Um, and I present, generally speaking, as uh, as a, a cis straight person. Um, it's it can be a challenge trying to really feel authentic. Um, that you can feel like you're an imposter, that you aren't queer enough, um, and so that's something that I've been having to deal with uh, the last year and a half as well. It's just um, just you know, assuring myself that, um, that however queer I am, that, that, that is queer enough. Um, and it's, and I've been able to make connections with some people, um, who also aren't, you know, binary queer, they aren't explicitly gay or whatever it happens to be. And, um, it's been helpful you know, seeing that other people have struggled with that, that whole concept of, of imposter syndrome, not being queer enough, but it's still something that I'm trying to, to explore. But I think it's less of an issue now than as it was, say, a year ago, um, because so much more time has been able to, to go by. But I, I just, and, and nobody's, nobody has come out and said that I'm not queer enough. You know, that, what are you doing? A part of this, this community, you're, you're straight. But it's still a worry I have. It's still a thought in my mind. It's like they're they're thinking this. People are this is what people are thinking. They're not saying it, but they're thinking it. Um, so it's still something that I have to. It's really fascinating. That's a whole fascinating yeah. angle that I've never thought of. Um, and that, but it's part of a theme I've heard sometimes where you're part now that you're part of two worlds, the Latter Day Saint 
community that you want to stay involved with and the queer community that you're part of, um, that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about how you should do that. <laughs> and I sense your maturity in life and your groundedness in life to know how to do that on your terms. And one of the themes listeners we've had that started with, a, I can't remember who started this, but you know, you've got to complete your own story. I really picked up on that from several podcasts ago. Sorry, I'm not remembering who exactly, but you hear a lot of stories, but the idea is each, each LGBTQ person, queer person, straight person too, needs to finish their own story. And I think that's particularly important in this space and just have the confidence to finish your own story. No one can finish your story for you. Um, I think there's a principle in personal revelation. There's a principle in integrity and honesty. And there's a lot of noises out there saying, this is how you should finish your story, podcast episodes. But I, that's my general advice to everybody is, you know, and you may not know how to finish your story right now, especially if you're a younger queer person in your teens you may be wondering how this is going to play out in my 20s when it's time to find a partner or choose celibacy. And my general advice to that group is just you, you'll learn, you'll know what to do in your 20s um, when it's time to sort of address those potential forks in the road. But right now you can just um, do the things that are within your control to continue to grow and move forward in your life. But do you have advice, Kim, for... Um, queer Latter-day Saints in their teens and 20s? Yeah, I think I think the main advice is to is for people to realize that it doesn't have to be a choice they make between the two. And I know for some people it's going to be a hard thing to realize. Like they might be in a in a in a in a family relationship in our family dynamic, in a war dynamic, that makes it really hard to both be queer and Mormon at the same time. But generally speaking, I, I, I don't think that that's something that has to be done. I, foundationally, I don't think, as Blair Osler points out in her book, very articulately and clearly, I don't think that foundationally the church is anti-queer. I think that's something that has crept into the church as we've uh, as we've aligned culturally with the right side of the political spectrum. Um, but I don't think it's found within the gospel message. Like there's hardly anything about queerness in the book. There's nothing about queerness in the Book of Mormon. There's hardly anything in it about it in the Bible. Nothing in the Doctrine and Covenants or the Prolegate Price. Um, and so there's just it's, it's problematic for us to be able to take the stance as a church, even culturally, um, that we are anti-queer, given that there's very, very little scriptural support for that sort of a, an environment. So I think, I think there is justification for people who choose to be both queer and Mormon. Um, and so, yeah, my advice would be to just to, to, to people for people to realize that you don't have to choose between the two. Even if you do choose, that isn't something you must choose, that there is, there is an option to, to be both. Um, even if it comes down to you, that that choice that you make is to not do both, that choice is still there. Love that. Um, I'm thinking of Kurt Nielsen's podcast, Listeners 436. He introduced that 
some he's a faithful Latter-day Saint. He's gay, and he says, "I don't, I don't have a belief crisis, but sometimes I have a belonging crisis, or a crisis of belonging." And kind of goes back to the boat. Some people that are working to stay in the boat, it's because of faith-related issues. Um, but some that are working to stay in the boat, and this is part of our responsibility to make a bigger boat. They, it's a, it's a belonging crisis or a crisis of belonging a feeling that people like them aren't welcome in the boat or needed. And I did a Twitter poll, listeners, because I'll just read this to you. If you were wondering if you can stay in the church, is it because of a, and I gave four choices, a belief crisis, a belonging crisis, equally both or something else. And 25% said a, a belonging crisis, and equally both was 35%. So only 31% said a belief crisis. And it's that's not a big Twitter sample, so I don't want to say that's scientific for the whole church, but it's it's an interesting discussion point. Um, and it goes back to, I think, what our leaders are trying to do is to create a feeling of belonging. And so this is a practical sort of real-life situation where Kim's been brave enough to share being queer over a testimony meeting, and now the moment of truth is sort of, you know, present in that ward. And every ward where someone's kind of vulnerable and open about any issue, will we help them feel like they belong as they've shared something pretty vulnerable about their life? Or is church just kind of this certain type of Latter-day Saint that fits all the fits in and has all the right check boxes that feels like they belong? Or where do you to mature as a church to create a feeling of inclusiveness? And we say that sometimes anecdotally, but then to me, this is sort of where the rubber meets the road, is in this practical situation with Kim, 20 years in that ward contributing to the cause, coming forward and sharing this about him. And um, it just causes me to look inward and say, what can I do? And what should each of us do to create a feeling of belonging? So people like Kim are, feel welcome. And, and maybe more importantly, like I said earlier, people like Kim um, help us become the body of Christ. We use people like Kim. We don't just sort of say, you're kind of welcome, sit on the side here, and the rest of us will run the show. We actually invite people like Kim to help run the show and contribute and teach and lead. And so I'll just turn it back to you for any final comments, Kim. And I think just following up with that, um, you know, on a lot of our award buildings, there's the phrase visitors welcome. Um, and I don't know that we do a really good job of that when it comes down to it, making visitors feel welcome. It's one thing to say visitors welcome, as in, you know, there's space on our pews. You can sit there if you want. <laughs> you can come and attend our, our meetings if you want. It's not just about making space available for people to visit. It's also making sure they feel welcome when they visit. And making them feel welcome is, is more than just teaching them about the gospel and hoping they feel the spirit. It's also about, um, do they feel comfortable there? Do they feel like they're accepted there? Do they feel like they are validated as an individual there? Do they feel like they're judged there? Do they feel like um, they are being targeted there? Um, and so there's more to being to welcoming people than just making space available. And so I think that that's important for us to even that that phrase has been part of our identity for decades. 
And I think we really need to take inventory of how we're doing on that and whether we are actually making feel making visitors feel welcome, whether we actually are welcoming them in the real sense of the word. Love that. So we'll just kind of end there, listeners. We never quite know where to end these podcasts. We just sort of stop and we could go for another hour, but that's probably good. And Kim, there's a lot of, this was a unique podcast. It's just fascinating to me that we dial in and start having this conversation and everyone is so unique and you are unique in such a wonderful, good way. And it just gives me hope for the future of the world, for Canada, for your congregation, for you and your family. And we need you. We need all your contributions. And thank you for the courage to share your story. And thank you for being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. So this is Kim Seaver and Richard Osler signing off. Mm -hmm.